Welcome back to Comics Over Time, a podcast where we take a trip through the history of Marvel Comics with a focus on some of the important and interesting comic stories that inspired the Hollywood blockbusters of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Every two weeks we take a look at a batch of comics, then watch the related MCU movie or TV show, and when we're done, we connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures and try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best, the books or the screen adaptation? My name is Dwayne, and with me, as always, is my good buddy Dan. Dan, welcome. Good to see you again. Yeah, yeah. Great to be talking to you again. It's going to be another fun week. We are, we said, we we just can't seem to quit Ant-Man, can we? No, we are, no, we we're can't. We're back, back into the world of Ant-Man. This time, we're actually going all the way back to 2015 for the movie that sort of started it all, for the Langs and Pims of the MCU. So it is yes. the eponymous Ant-Man Yes, yes. Uh, before we do that, we do want to take a quick look and see what's going on in the world of comics this week. And the first story I want to talk about is Agatha Harkness is reuniting with the Scarlet Witch in Marvel's Contest of Chaos event that is coming uh, th- this summer, actually. Um Really interesting. There's an article about it on comicbook.com, including some uh, preview shots of covers and some different things. Talks about after witnessing her apparent death and resurrection in Midnight Suns, Agatha Harkness returns to the forge, returns to forge a new dark hold, and is totally rewrite how magic works in the Marvel Universe. The first steps in Agatha's quest begins in June's Scarlet Witch Annual Number 1 before continuing in several other annuals, all making up the crux of the Contest of Chaos uh, that we're talking about. And so this first one, Scarlet Witch Annual Number 1, is being written by Stephanie Phillips, who wrote Rogan Gambit, as well as Cosmic Ghost Rider. There's a prelude that goes along with this that is written by writers Steve Orlando and artist Carlos Nieto. So uh, these are characters that I really like. And we, we've talked about, I think, both of us really liking WandaVision. And yep, so absolutely. we've seen them there. But they, they're actually, they interact a lot in the comics, don't they? Well, I mean, they're both they're both sort of on the mystical side of the MCU. This is all sure. really new though, because the weird thing is that while they have interacted a lot over the years, and in fact, like a lot of the back in Avengers, when you had some of the Wonder Gore Martin stuff and everything, she was a fundamental part of Scarlet Witch's story. But the weird thing about this is that the Agatha Harkness we're going to see now, completely different. Because like you mm. say, the whole resurrection thing, Agatha Harkness used to be like a classic, just old as dust sort of witch looking character, right? Oh, okay. And then after you get the Agatha Harkness of the television show and that just being fundamentally not what she looks like, they basically have just, yeah, completely redone her. So now she's young, she's beautiful, she's more like a... uh, a proper foil really for for Scarlet Witch. So we're going to see the 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 Egg of the Harkness we see coming out now is nothing I've ever seen before. So we'll see how this all works out. But yeah. Gotcha. Very different. Okay. That sounds kind of interesting and fun. And I was going to say that's about 4 months away or something in Marvel Unlimited. So yeah, maybe more than that in fact because it's these are just being solicited. So then 
when they are actually available, then it's four months or three months after that that we get them in unlimited. So yeah. um, it's going to be a little while before you actually see this. But it, it looks really cool. Uh, again, because it is going to be one of these event type of things. Who knows? 20, 30, 50, 70 books, whatever it is that they throw <laughs> in. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the other interesting story, Unstoppable Doom Patrol creative team previews a new leader, team, and purpose. So uh, there was an interview on comicbook.com with uh, the creative team behind this new Unstoppable Doom Patrol, which is a six-issue miniseries that is from writer Dennis Culver, artist Chris Burnham, and colorist brian reber and it shakes up the doom patrol status quo considerably there is a new chief leading the group and the team is welcoming two new members and they actually go into specifics as to who those are but i don't want to spoil this if this is something you don't necessarily want to know but if you do want to know definitely check out the interview you can find out who the two new new members of the team are who the new chief is and uh you you read much doom patrol dan I read a lot of Doom Patrol back in the day, uh, especially because New Teen Titans, one of the characters in that, Gar Logan, actually had a connection back to the Doom Patrol. So when I was younger, I did. And then lately I've been reading and buying them because my daughter is a big Gerard Way fan. Uh, and so besides listening to like, you know, Welcome to the Black Parade, she enjoys the Umbrella Academy books. He's written some of the others. And he wrote a series of Doom Patrol books. And gotcha. so... It uh, it's interesting stuff. Doom Patrol is almost always insane, especially in recent <laughs> years. You've got Grant Morrison, you've got Way, you've got all these people who've really just taken it in very interesting directions. So it's generally one of the more experimental sort of books that DC has, and it's kind of an acid trip sort of book. Which, again, I don't know if you've watched any of the HBO show. But it is similarly just completely off the rails. I, I, you know, a few weeks ago, I actually watched the first episode of Doom Patrol on, on HBO Max. And, oh boy, that was something. I, I have yet to start the second episode. So I, I've heard good things about the TV show and, and yep. how it's, it's pretty fairly faithful to like the comics and at least in spirit of the yeah. craziness and everything that goes on uh if not the actual complete adaptation but it but it's but yeah there is there is a lot of a lot of craziness going on there and the team is really really interesting yep the most faithful way you can do doom patrol is to do something no one's ever seen out of doom patrol before because that's there what all of the best what all of the best doom patrol stories do so there you go. So if you're interested in getting uh, going on this six issue mini series, that actually is coming out very soon. Later this month, actually, March 28th is when the first book hits hits your local comic book store. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, definitely check that out. You even check in the DC solicits. Who are who are you even? I know, right? I'm trying to trying to do some balance here. Trying to trying to uh you know, very nice. Hit hit independence as well from time to time, at least, or some of the smaller ones like Image, like we talked about last week. 
finally in lieu of a recommendation i have an article that i wanted to uh bring to everyone's attention that i think is really interesting and it is about the movie that we are going to be talking about today the the ant-man uh first film and actually it's talking about the ant-man films in general uh it's an article in polygon called the ant-man movies have been a big and often bad influence on the mcu and there's it's it's really interesting uh there, the the author uh, Jesse, sorry, I had it up. the The author Jesse Hessinger posits some really interesting uh, things about the Ant Man films, and uh, one one of the one of the comments in there specifically, or a paragraph that that I think kind of sums up where where he is talking about and why these have been in so influ- influential is this. But eight years later, Ant-Man looks like a critical signpost on the MCU road, proof that where Iron Man didn't need Batman-level popularity to lead a massive franchise, future installments in the franchise didn't need to be Iron Man in order to be viable, crowd-praising hits. Casting an established star as a lower-tier superhero didn't always have to mean a Robert Downey Jr.-level star giving a career-redefining performance as Tony Stark-level character. Well-liked comic actor Paul Rudd, affably playing barely-known comic mainstay Stott Lang, could do just fine. Ant-Man wasn't a massive hit to end Phase 2, but it established a clear MCU baseline in the post-Iron Man world. So there's, it's really interesting talk, talking about all three movies and and positing why Quantum Mania really hasn't hasn't seemed to completely latch on uh, as well as maybe the first films, and he kind of even goes so far as to kind of deconstruct what maybe we thought those first two films were like, and so I highly recommend checking out this article. I think it's really interesting or this opinion piece. I think more than anything. Uh, it definitely, I think it's, I think it's worth a read and, and something to consider when we talk about how much we like older MCU films and maybe why we don't like some of the newer MCU films. Well, I think one of the other, other interesting thing, I mean, that says, you know, for good and for evil, that there were a lot of ways that this showed how you could how you could you didn't need to have a blockbuster to be able to to make money on this or you didn't have to have you know the a-list kind of star and the and the big character but i think the other point that the author's making is that edgar wright being sort of dumped off this film was sort of a precursor of that idea that all marvel films going forward were going to conform to a certain sort of standard right yeah we were going to have sort of this assembly line McNugget kind of movie plan where you you started to see the colors and you started to see the pacing and a lot of the other stuff um, sort of tightly controlled. And now, is that bad? I don't know. I mean, the DCU has been very auteur-driven. And sometimes that works and a lot of times it doesn't. So it's it's weird, though, that they have diverged this completely. Where it's yeah. hard to really tell who directed a Marvel movie, in my opinion, because a lot of this stuff is so 
You know, you don't you don't look at a Marvel movie and go, oh man, that's a Scorsese picture or something. You know, the directors are sort of constrained within the formula. You look at a, a DCEU picture and you can definitely see the director's stamp on it in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And and they encourage that and Marvel doesn't. But yeah, I, I think that I would agree that I think that there's been a lot the Ant Man movies have been more important to the to the MCU than I think a lot of people would figure, just kind of looking at the names of all the movies. Yeah. To, to your point, I remember seeing a, a quote from Edgar Wright about this film, which was, I wanted to create a Marvel movie, but Marvel didn't want to create an Edgar Wright movie. And so that's how he ended up not being a part of this picture when it was all said and done. So uh, to, to, your, to your point. Which is someone who's been hanging out with my kids watching every Edgar Wright movie, sometimes multiple times over the last couple of years because they adore them. I would have really loved to see him do it because he makes spectacular films. So that is that is a loss, but we we review what we have, not what we think we might have had, right? So we're going to talk about the movie they made, I guess, eventually. Now that we can we can just be sad a little bit. Did you? I, I guess you have a recommendation in here. Do you want to talk about I do. that real quick? Um. You'd actually asked me earlier this week about, um, you know, that you'd seen a humble bundle for some of the Saga stuff, which yes. obviously Saga's been around a long time, great stuff. I wanted to note that there's a current humble bundle out, which if any of you haven't been out to humblebundle.com, it's a website that every month or so has new game and book and media bundles that are available and essentially the proceeds benefit various charities. This month, actually, they have an ElfQuest bundle, which I've never seen them have one of those before. It is basically complete ElfQuest. And Wendy Peeney's been making this story since, like, the 70s. This is absolutely something you should check out if you're a fantasy fan who likes comic books. This is one of the classics of independent comics. It's also one of the longest-running comic books in history by a woman. And it is a book that is celebrated by all sorts of folks for just how high a quality it's maintained over decades of production. Uh, It's definitely um, not for kids because it does have um, a little bit more like just sort of open sexual content and stuff like that in it than you might think from something called ElfQuest. So just know that going in. But it's actually... One of the one of the classics of the comic genre, uh, guys like Neil Gaiman, a lot of these other folks who came in sort of in the '80s and '90s. This was one of their touchstone books that they really loved. So, originals are hard to find and expensive. You can get basically the entire thing for twenty five bucks and read them on your tablet. Highly recommended. Excellent, and we we will have a bu- a link to that bundle in the show notes if you're interested in checking that out. Absolutely. Now let's jump in. Let's jump in and let's talk about the movie. This is your spoiler warning for a 2015 film, which feels a little ridiculous now, uh, some eight plus years later. But we are going to be talking about uh, characters, plot points, all that sort of thing from the first Ant-Man film. If this is if you haven't seen the film recently or have not seen it at all and do not want any of that spoiled for you, please definitely pause now check out the film and then come back and hear us talk all about it. 
And with that, I'm going to dive into the film facts for Ant-Man. The tagline for the film is heroes don't get any bigger. I actually, I like that tagline. That's quite, quite, quite great. It was released July 17th, 2015. It has a runtime of 117 minutes. As far as box office goes, worldwide, it took in just over $519 million. Domestically, it took in just over $180 million on a budget of only $130 million. So significantly less than some of the budgets that we were seeing across some of the other films, particularly in phase two of the MCU. Uh, on IMDb, it has a rating of 7.3 out of 10. The movie stars Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly, Corey Stoll, Michael Pena, David Dashmulchen, Tip T.I. Harris, and Michael Douglas. It is directed by Peyton Reed. And screenplay is a little interesting. The credits on the film are Edgar Wright, Joe Cornish, Adam McKay, and Paul Rudd. Uh, Peyton Reed, the director, has revealed that Andrew Bearer and Gab Gabriel Ferrari, Ferrari uh, were also writers on the movie, but had to remain uncredited due to, the, due to the Writers Guild. And there was also a rewrite done by David Callaham before filming ever started. So there, there's a reason for a lot of writing credits on this, and we'll talk about it throughout uh, the discussion of this. But yeah, this is this is a movie that has been around or was in pre-production for quite a while. And I think even earlier than you would think that it would be, uh, at least some of the germination of it being a film. And we will talk about all of that during kind of the discussion topics. But those... Those are your film facts for Ant-Man from 2015. Yeah, do you want to hit us with a, a recap of the film? Sure. Interesting. Lots of good stuff in there. So, this film actually begins. See Stock Lang for the very first time in the MCU as he is actually getting out of prison and immediately then trying to go straight. He's got a daughter to think of. He's determined to stay out of trouble. Unfortunately, though, he can't find a job anywhere other than Baskin-Robbins, and even they fire him once they find out he's got a record. So he ends up falling back in with his group of friends, who are kind of uh, questionable associates, and that results in him burglarizing the house of one Hank Pym and ending up stealing a motorcycle suit that he finds after cracking a very sturdy safe. Lang soon finds out the suit allows him to shrink down, and also finds out Hank arranged for him to steal the suit so he could enlist Scott's help in stopping his old protege. That, that particular protege, Darren Cross, has rediscovered Pym's shrinking secret and is planning on selling it to the highest bidder. Hank, Scott, and Hank's daughter Hope set out to steal the Yellow Jacket suit prototype and destroy all the data and research that would allow Cross to recreate it. With the help of Lang's criminal associates, they infiltrate Cross's lab, nearly get the suit, and end up in a massive fight that ends with Hank driving a tank out of the building just before it explodes. <laughs> a, a tank that was on his keychain up until a few minutes ago. Yes, in, in yes. Case you didn't catch that. Scott then fights Cross all across town, and eventually they end up having a showdown in Cassie's room. Scott manages to implode Cross by going subatomic and nearly ends up lost forever in the process. He gets back, though, and things end with him and his daughter getting back together, him and Hope romantically involved, 
and Hank ready to start work on a suit for his daughter and probably to start looking for his wife now that he knows that you can come back from the quantum realm. Yes. Yes. No, that is, that is a very succinct and very, very good recap of the film. And I, I've now watched it twice in the span of two weeks as, as I watched it the first time getting ready for quantum mania. And then I rewatched it again uh, er, earlier today in, in preparation of this episode. So uh, I, Mm -hmm. this movie very, very fresh in my mind. And the first thing I think I would like to talk about is the Scott Lang Ant-Man. This, this is basically an origin story and it is, there are definitely seeds of the comic book Ant-Man story, but it is also different in in, in some very key key ways uh you know we know from the comics that we've read that basically uh you know Ca- cassie is the motivating factor of scott lang he in the comics is trying to save his daughter from basically dying because of darren cross i th- i think i like this telling of of the story of the origin story because one, it doesn't put a little girl in danger until basically the end of the film when when Darren Cross goes kind of crazy in the yellow jacket armor. But but also kind of just the the whole idea of him just basically letting Scott Lang have the suit after he steals it is something that just didn't really sit right to me in the comic book origins. And he, and here it makes a lot more sense. Yep. I would say that there's some truth to that. Although the, the fundamental aspects of it do remain that essentially he does, he does steal the suit and whether he was allowed to or not, it's still giving the most powerful suit on the planet Theoretically, you know, he, he, he basically says that the Iron Man armor is is essentially just a toy compared to the, the Ant-Man suit. And he's giving it to a guy who did actually think he was stealing it at the point where he got it. So right. still, yeah. still a little bit questionable. But uh, yeah. Yeah. But but I mean, like he's he, Pim actually has a reason for him to want to have the suit he also kind of intimates that he can't use the suit anymore because uh because of all the uh uses of the suit that it potentially yep. would be hazardous to his health and so there's some things about it that just i think make a lot more sense and 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 they they talked about uh i think it was Peyton Reed talked about this being kind of a passing of the torch film in that it's the suit is the torch in this case, and it, it's going from Hank Pym to Scott Lang in this, and 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 they made, and the and the story is all about about that, and that's why you know Hank ends up being kind of a mentor through all this, and I and I I don't know maybe maybe we didn't read the comic books where that that was the case, but it never really felt like Pym played that much of a a mentoring influence. Uh, to the Scott Lang version of Ant-Man. Uh, I don't think he is at this level by in any ways. Partly because right. Hank Pym in the comics is not the sort of person who hangs right. out and does reasonable things like that, right? Yeah. But I think he did at some time, you know, he, he did help him. Um, 
overall, though, I just found this to be a really good setup. I also was surprised looking back at just how much of a an Ant-Men film this really is in terms of there's an awful lot of it that is the story of Hank Pym rather yeah. than just the story of Scott Lang, you know? Yeah. And it's it's a story of him and his daughter, just like it's a story of Lang and his daughter. And so that was something that as I watch it again, I'm, I was struck by how much they really did concentrate on both families, not just not just on Lang getting the suit, but, but yeah. kind of that whole dynamic. Yeah, I, I definitely think it adds to the film. And both both from kind of just the the world building standpoint, but also from the storytelling standpoint, because there mm -hmm. there's definitely parallels and differences in that that you can you can use to compare and contrast throughout this whole whole scenario. And and I think that they're I think that they end up using both of them very very well throughout this film. Yeah, it's also interesting when they're talking about you know when you're talking about Lang that they do actually look at the fact that he's, you know, he tries to go straight, but then when things don't work out, he settles back into, okay, well, I guess I'll go and rob things again. And he gets called uh, out on that later by, yeah. um, by Hank, who's just like, look, you know, you, you took the easy way out at a certain point and you've got to stop taking the easy way out and be willing to stick to something to make it work. Yeah. And so I think there was there was a lot of growth in this film that you can see in terms of of him kind of coming to terms with what he has to do in terms of his family and also just getting his getting his life together in general, you know? Yeah. So I, I want to talk about Paul Rudd specifically because I feel like him. Ryan Reynolds, Keanu Reeves. There's there's a few of these guys that I don't feel like they play characters so much as they just play themselves in films, which mm -hmm. is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, Paul Paul Rudd ends up being kind of this rather charming, lovable loser kind of person, except he doesn't actually lose. Unlike unlike the like Hank Pym and and. And like even Scott Lang in in the comics, I, I feel like the things that Scott Lang does in the comics, the kind of the destructive tendencies that he keeps going towards, aren't rather charming at all. And and having and having a care a a and having him do those sorts of things would be really difficult to kind of put on the screen if you don't have a a rather charming person doing them and, and and actually edgar wright hand selected paul rudd for this role based on his natural charisma charisma and said that scott the character needs to be likable despite the fact that he's he's a criminal and the story is about him committing crimes taking the easy way out doing things that he shouldn't be doing and and paul rudd does that and I, I found myself just kind of like thinking about that as I'm watching the movie, specifically the second time. And it's like, I don't know how many other actors could really pull that off very well. And I think that's actually important. And 
there are some people who talk about how you know the, the certain actors always play themselves as though it's a bad thing. But my mm-hmm. favorite actor of, of all time is Humphrey Bogart. And Humphrey Bogart never played anyone except Humphrey Bogart, right? Right. And that's why nearly a hundred years later, you can say it's a Humphrey Bogart film and people sure. will have an idea in their head of what that is. Uh-huh. If I say it's a, it's a Dustin Hoffman film, what does that mean to you? One of the great actors yeah. of all time. But yeah. the thing is, he was actually able to sort of subsume himself in his roles yeah. to where, you know, he could be a, a gangster or he could be a cop or he could be Tootsie or he could be, you know, Captain Hook. And I think he was Captain Hook, wasn't he? Yeah, I can't even remember because, <laughs> but he's been like so many different things. Yeah. And Paul Rudd, I think you're right that he is generally that guy, that sort of affable, slightly unlucky dude who in the end things are going to work out for, partly not even because he deserves it, but just because <laughs> he gets lucky. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, Ryan Reynolds, very similar. He's always going to be the, you know, the jokester and, and like kind of a little bit self-effacing where things go wrong, but then it works out for him. Um, and that's, I think, how you become a movie star. There are a lot of actors out there. But if you want to be a movie star, really, that's, yeah. you know. It, it's it's hard for anyone else to play Paul Rudd. So yep. if, you play, if you're if you Paul Rudd and you play Paul Rudd well, people and, and people like that character, like that person, he's gonna, you're going to f- keep finding work, I imagine. Yep. We, we watched the... Uh, the Nick Cage movie, the unbearable weight of massive talent or whatever. Yes. And yes. Nick Cage is a movie star. He only ever yep. plays himself. Even if he's playing something wildly different, he's still just Nick Cage playing that guy, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting that there are, there are some actors who just sort of make a career doing that. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's a cool shorthand for us as an audience. Yeah. Because you kind of know what you're going to get. We knew that we were supposed to like Ant-Man when we sat down in the theater because he's being played by Paul Rudd. He was yeah. not, in the end, going to do a heel turn and, like, no. betray us all, you know? No. And and I and I don't want to suggest that he didn't, tr- like, try to do different things for this role. In fact, according to Michael Douglas, they actually had to chain, alter the costume, the Ant-Man costume for Paul Rudd, because he was working out and training and trying to make the stunts and different things work and look Mm -hmm. uh, impressive. Rudd went through a a rather extensive training and workout regimen in order to build proper muscles for being a superhero. And because of that, he ended up getting so muscular that they had to soften the costume up in order for it to, you know, for it to fit and actually uh, be to, to be wearable because most of the shots, uh, the action sequences where Rudd is in the suit, he is actually in a suit. It, those are not CGI. Unlike mm-hmm. uh, Corey Stoll, when he is yellow jacket near the end of the film, he was in a green suit, and, and they had to make, they did a CGI for for the yellow jacket suit because it it they they said it wasn't really reasonable for them to create that suit and it would have been difficult to 
Uh, With all the arms on it. And uh, all the arms and different things like that. It wasn't practical to have an actor in an actual suit. So they basically just green, green suited him. And then they put the CGI of the suit on after the fact. So, so that, that I think is, is, is really interesting about it. Now that uh, I would also say it's not in any way a dig on him. Like I said, Humphrey Bogart, one of my favorites of all time. Being able, being able to be someone that people repeatedly want to spend hours watching do things on screen, is yeah. uh, is a is a talent not most people have. So right. Hmm. So you wanted to talk about about the Pims, or at least Hank Pym and and Hope Van Dyne, because they they definitely are other the other central characters to the to this film and while i think that scott lang in terms of his his motivations and his character and his overall kind of who he is in the comics as opposed to the movie is relatively similar in a lot of ways yeah uh, hank pym and hope van dyne are really a curveball for comics fans because hank sure pym, we spent the last few weeks realizing you're not a big fan of Hank Pym in the comic books. <laughs> I am not a big Hank Pym fan. No, <laughs> he's, no. He's awful, right? And yeah. and he's he's just one of those guys who's constantly screwing up. One of those guys who's constantly making a mistake. One of those guys who really, at a fundamental level, turns around and every day does the thing that Hank Pym in the movie does not do, which is realizes right. something is dangerous and then keeps deciding to do it anyways just because he can't help himself. You know? Right. Ah, it seems like this robot I'm making might destroy the world. But maybe it would also be a good thing. I guess I won't know until I've finished it, right? Whereas <laughs> Hank yeah. Pym here sees the dangers of the Pym Particle. He's lost his wife. And he says, I'm just going to put this away because people can't handle this. They can't use it safely. We're just going to We're just gonna pretend it didn't happen. And... He's also somebody who then, you know, he has a, a fraught relationship with his daughter. But we find that coming out of trying to protect her. Um, he's not abusive, in any, at least in terms of anything we see on screen, to either his wife or his daughter. Um, he's a guy who his motivations and a lot of the other things about him just are completely different. And so it's a good thing. It's a good thing in my opinion, frankly. Uh, it's, I'm I can't even argue that. If you want, if you want to use Ant Man, obviously it's going to be much easier. Now that said, Hank Pym is a very challenging character in the MCU, and there was, if you've got a really good storyteller, obviously somebody who is that driven and keeps making all these mistakes and ruining his own life. There's also a good story to be told there, but it's a sure. painful story that yeah. a lot of people don't want to go to the movie theater to see in a popcorn film. Yeah, that's so true. Probably makes sense to change it. Uh, as part of that, the other crazy thing is suddenly he's got a grown daughter named Hope, who, kind of like we inferred last week, you know, they get divorced with no children in the MCU or in the, the comics and they don't have children. Now he does actually have a daughter Maria from his first wife who we find out later who was sort of like stolen away and raised elsewhere and comes back into the picture later. But yes, 
Dwayne is making a, a what that's a, face? That sounds very super opera-esque, actually. There's always, always a, uh, a secret relative someplace in the comics. So, so he does actually have a daughter, but not with Janet in the comics. Hope is actually essentially a character that ends up being in a different universe than kind of like, you know, the multiverse we mm, saw with Dr. Yes. Strange. There is a Hope Van Dyne in the multiverse, often another universe someplace, but she does not exist in the, what's called the 616, the, the regular Marvel universe. So kind of a strange thing does make for a massive departure point from the comics to the movies, obviously. So, and they haven't figured out a way to retcon this one back in the comics yet. They can't just make her make no. her younger or something like this. They have to actually figure out how, you know, how, uh, yeah, I don't even know how you manage to get Janet and Hank a, you, you could do it by just having her sort of pop in from that universe and stay, which has happened yeah. in the DC universe every once in a while. So I liked Hope Van Dyne, but I liked that character a lot more in the second and third films. I mean, this she's basically just sort of she she's in this movie, but she and, and she is kind of a uh butting heads with with her dad throughout most of the film as to I want to be the one in the suit I want to be the one that uh you know stops this from happening because you can't do it and is kind of against Scott but is also sort of helping Scott uh you know learn how to use the suit and that sort of thing I I felt like there was a lot of seeds that they could have done a lot more with 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 that character and in fact from the sounds of it uh according to but according to evangeline lily who said the original kind of script the edgar wright script of the film significantly pared down the hope Deva, hope van dyne character and in fact this kind of final iteration of her is significantly beefed up from where it was originally and so I, I think I think this was a good direction. I think this is a very good character, a very interesting character, and the dynamic with with Hank, how she works with Scott, that whole thing, I think definitely looked like it was going or could be really good. And I think it gets there in like the second film specifically, where she kind of co-headlines the movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Here, here, you could just kind of see the seeds for that character being planted uh, for this film. Yeah, it's hard for her to really be as as interesting when she spends, as a character, sort of her position in the film is being the person that's constantly being sidelined because her dad is afraid she's going to get hurt and is putting this nincompoop into danger instead of her, even right, though she's right. far more qualified to do whatever the job that needs to be done is. So, yeah, yeah um, I, I do think that, yeah, that was probably a difficult, a difficult role to write. And they did a pretty decent job still making her relatively likable and interesting, even though she really didn't get a whole lot to do. No. Uh, compared to what she obviously would have been able to as she'd been practicing with the ants and all that stuff already. So, mm -hmm. yeah. 
but it's but it's just interesting completely completely different character adds a totally new sort of layer to the ant-man universe so yeah so i want to talk about scale uh this this movie unlike i think the third movie which we just got out got done watching here a couple weeks ago this movie felt big and also small at the same time there was just so much size changing throughout this film that it never felt like anything stayed the same for very long and the like the way they ended up using kind of the bigger and smaller objects throughout the film like particularly the end the giant ant thomas the tank tank engine all that sort of stuff i think really really worked well and really kind of accentuated the the fact that we have this guy in a suit that's going microscopic to full a, a full human-sized man and and i think it, uh it was it was really it was more visually interesting i think than even seeing kind of the wild and craziness of the quantum realm what what, what do you think I 100% agree with that. And in fact, I think that to me, that's the primary problem that Quantumanium ha Quantumania has is that I, I found it fascinating to have ants the size of dogs running around. And I found it fa fascinating to have Thomas the Tank Engines and, you know, that there are all of these things that are at different sizes and are kind of being messed with. Even in the next movie we watch, you know, when you have you have them shrinking the building down and putting it in the in the van or, you know, yes. cars being shrunk and then put back up. Uh -huh. It was just so fun to see a world that you understand sort of reinterpreted through that that digital mass scale and, yeah. and magic. Yeah. You know? that moving things bigger and smaller there really made sense. I just didn't I didn't really get that feeling of scale because everything was so foreign in Quantumania. And so yeah. I I absolutely loved the special effects in this. I loved the way they did Ant-Man's powers and the way he would he would jump and sort of, you know, put his full weight into things or or punch and the like. I think they made it really visually understandable to people watching how this tiny little guy was somehow able to take out so many people and do all this damage and everything else so yeah yeah the effects in I, this were top notch yeah i want to talk about two things in particular about this the scale first is the the filmmaker makers made extensive use of what's called macro photography which i was not familiar with uh before but Macro photography is extreme close-up photography, usually of very small subjects and living organisms like insects, in which the size of the subject in the photography is greater than life size. So that's why you have ants that are the size of cars or or bigger, uh, you know, actually much bigger in a lot of cases. And yep. and, and it does it, it does really kind of blows your mind from a from a, a size point of view of what what's going on there and they talked production designer Shepard Fankel said it's more visually interesting to depict things from Ant-Man's point of view instead of seeing him 
from a normal perspective. We wanted a realistic realization, not honey, I shrunk the kids with oversized set pieces. And I mean, the oversized set pieces were fun too, like the the Thomas the Trank engine. But yeah, those ants yeah. looked looked really, really great throughout all this. And we, and we kept seeing all different versions of them uh, throughout this film. And I thought they looked really cool. The, the other thing that looked really neat was what they referred to as the time echo when, when, when the Ant-Man was shrinking and they talked about um, doing basically almost a stop motion photography mm-hmm. when it came to, to his shrinking and, and that uh, so that you'd see kind of this outline or silhouette of various points in which he was made, being made smaller. And and it just, it's a little thing, but it does kind of mess with size and scope and, and makes things really visually interesting. And I don't know if it's because it's like, this is the first time we're seeing it, because this was the first film where, where we were really seeing it. Um but it just it worked really well throughout throughout this film. I think even I mean the other thing with that is that it has such a resonance of comic book art because oh, when yeah. Ant Man or the Atom is shrinking in the comics, that's usually what you see is you see all these different sized versions of the character in sort of almost sure. like a, a an action line, and then the size of smaller or bigger that he's getting to being like the hard lines of the of the regular art and so it's very very much either either just accidentally or intentionally they're referencing the comic book strategies for showing how somebody shrinks and grows i i had not even considered that but yeah that's that that is definitely now that you mention Mm -hmm. it that is definitely a thing that's going on there So let's talk about the final act of this film, because I think you and I diverge. And in fact, I feel like after watching the film between the first time and the second time, I found the final act of this film a bit exhausting the second time I watched it. And, and partially because I think it is, it's really long. Like the last... The last kind of the, the the final act, the the infiltration and the confrontation with Darren Cross starts about 70 minutes into the film. So you've got about 35 minutes of nonstop kind of Ocean's Eleven infiltration sort of scene, followed by the confrontation both at PIM Technologies and then um and then like on the helicopter and then a, a random person's house and then eventually in in Cassie's bedroom and the other thing is like you get this scenario like when they're in the backyard of these random people's houses and you see Ant-Man swat the yellow jacket into the bug zapper and you're like okay I could take a breath now. This the they're gonna be wrapping this up. Things are almost over. We still have another 10, 15 minute action sequence going on with that confrontation at at Cassie's house that I reminded me actually a lot of like the end of Winter Soldier and Age of Ultron, where we had just these huge, sort of long set 
like final acts where there was just this prolonged action scene after action scene after action scene that I don't know. It just sort of like it. I found myself kind of looking at my watch this time, the second time watching the film that, and I didn't enjoy it as much. You, you liked the, 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 uh, the, that final act, right? Well, I did, but I also, I mean, I, I think it, it's a bit of a question on where you start the final act because yeah. when Luis is infiltrating and doing that, you're right. There's kind of the oceans 11, but then that goes until essentially the point when cross pulls a gun on, um, on everybody. Uh, and and Hank. It all yeah. kind of goes to heck in that sealed chamber as, as Ant-Man is, is exploding out. So, that's at about one twenty-five. So you got about ten minutes of them just kind of figuring it out. Then you've got maybe ten minutes of him chasing the guy, and then suddenly he ends up in the police car, and you do get kind of a little bit of a break and whatever. I guess, yeah, and I then guess we've got a break there. So there's there's like these weird little. I I would admit that I think there's one maybe too many of them. Because you've yeah. got the the fight at the place, then you've got the chase and the fight in the in the pool area, and then you've got the the, the fight at the house. Mm -hmm. It probably does get a little much, but it never really bothered me because it was all sort of just relatively light and it ran together, and there was still character stuff going on through a lot of it. So it wasn't like Avengers. Where it's literally mm. just people punching each other, for <laughs> yeah, and, and shooting. That each is other. true. That is you know, true. There were there were a lot more, uh, even a lot of the stuff in in the room, you know, before they're doing the Thomas the Tank Engine thing, where they're they're fighting each other in the toy tank. He's sort of like standing there threatening the little girl, and then at a certain point, they're they're almost like talking before some of it. It's. It didn't bother me. I, I do see when I went back and looked at the time codes that the whole we're going in and finishing up the last part of it did take longer than I would have thought it would. But I wasn't necessarily I wasn't necessarily bored by it. Um, yeah. I, I enjoyed it. So. It, I don't know. Maybe I'm being a bit too harsh. Maybe I should have just like enjoyed it a little bit more i guess i don't know or just not thought so much about it but i guess i'm thinking about it just thinking about some of the other films that came immediately before this and the things that we're seeing it just sort of felt like more of the same and it didn't necessarily feel like that the first time i watched it but it did sort of feel that way this the second time second time viewing it i think the bigger question there might be you know that article that you talked about earlier is it so much that this is more of the same or that everything that came after this was more of the same that's true it, i know? mean this did sort of make uh you know the this sort of thing then happened more frequently but, afterwards yeah you know but i do think that as a as a third act or a a final battle goes i did like the fact that this it moved it moved locations a little bit and it had more stuff that actually had character interactions rather than just being 
sort of like the, you know, yeah. the out and out violence. There was still a lot of violence going on, but it was like a guy getting hit by a play train and, you know, <laughs> a guy getting run yeah. over by a, by a giant ant and stuff like this. Yeah. So there was a lot of humor. The other thing is that if at a certain point you get tired of it, the humor starts to, if humor doesn't hit for you, it can be a very long time sitting there watching a show. And it might just be that, you know, having watched this a couple times right in a row, sometimes that takes away a little bit from it. Yeah. So. Yeah. It it definitely, I think, I, I think the movie in general didn't come across as humorous the second time as I thought, as I remembered thinking it was after watching it the first time, like the humor didn't hit me quite the same way at the watch re in the rewatch. So. Well, I haven't watched it in a couple of years until just uh, last, like yesterday, my son and I watched it and we both really enjoyed it. I mean, Luis, every, yes. every time he was yes. on screen, even, even just at the very end when they're like, you know, we got to go help Scott and then they get there and there's cops everywhere. And he's like, back it up, back it uh, up. And they up, just disappear. Yeah. We don't see them anymore after that. But every scene he was in made me laugh. I liked mm -hmm. a lot of the sort of simple moments. I do think that a lot of the a lot of the humor was stuff that was sort of the referential type thing that has been overused and that maybe is a it's Edgar Wright humor, but if you're not Edgar Wright, it maybe is best not to try too much <laughs> of that. Right? Yes. Yes. So I, I think that could be part of it. Um, and But, you know, most of the characters worked really well for me. I, I think the only character in the film I didn't think worked was the the boyfriend of, of Cassie's uh, mom. Paxton, the, uh, the cop. Paxton. Yeah. His, he just sort of seemed to be everywhere for no particular reason. And he was always <laughs> right. causing trouble. Yes. Uh, it wasn't really... It wasn't really my favorite character, but he didn't do a bad job. I mean, the actor's a great actor and everything like that. It just, I think that was a little bit too much, uh, just trying to, to work that character in. How about Darren Cross? What did you think of the villain? So he's in the last act a lot. Yes. I liked Corey Stoll as that as Darren Cross in this. It, it felt it felt like just the right amount of kind of crazy villain sort of scenario. Um, there wasn't it, it didn't come across as being sort of too over the top, I guess. Like you can have these villains that are like their plan is just ridiculous or you like he doesn't strike me as be, being like. I don't know, crazy. He just seems like he just seems like kind of a guy without really uh, much in the way of ethics, and just is like well, I am much out in the for way of ethics. Much like any ethics, like, <laughs> probably. Um, but like, yeah, he's you know he's he's obviously smart. He's a, a scientist and and knows how you know is deconstructing this like really intense sort mm -hmm. of like scientific discovery or rediscovering the scientific yep. discovery and like you know he wants to 
gain power. He wants to gain lots of money. And it's it, it, it all seemed like reasonable to me. Like everything he did, everything he was trying to do seemed seemed reasonable to me. Like this this seems like a bad guy villain. And there wasn't a lot of complexity like with regards to is the, is there is what he's doing right? No, there's not like anything like that. But so there isn't any any sort of like gray area where you can sympathize with him really all that much. That's exactly where I came away from this and kind of what I wanted to talk about is that what I like about the Darren Cross villain in this movie is that this is just an easy movie where the bad guy is just flat out bad. He looks bad. He acts smarmy. He is obviously just going for the money and potentially causing all sorts of trouble for world peace it probably is a good thing in a movie where you've got a lead character, a protagonist, who is a little bit in the gray area anyways. We know that Paul Red's a good guy and his character is going to be a good character, but he still is somebody who's just gotten out of prison and he did do the thing that he went to prison for and everything. So that they didn't give him a similarly gray villain. They just gave him a a villain who's completely he, on the side of the devils, you know. He's and he's so, a comic book villain in my in my 100%. estimation. He is a comic book villain. He is the guy that the good guy fights and the good guy yep. wins against. That that's just yep. it. And so I think that was nice. The one the one level of complexity he has that I did think was interesting and that I think adds some real complexity to Hank's character is. There is a point where he's visiting Hank in his house. And he says, why is it that you took me on as your protege? And he's like, because I saw a lot of myself in you. And he's like, well, then why did you dump me? He's like, because I saw too much of myself in you. Yeah. And I think that's a really important, if, if you want a takeaway line for those two characters, that's the takeaway line. That Darren Cross is the Hank Pym of the Marvel Universe gone yes. bad and just letting mm-hmm. his influences and his impulses take him down the wrong road and hank pym of the mcu is the guy who's like mm, lost my wife might be creating a weapon that could destroy the world maybe i should re-examine my life and he stops and so i i did i did find that line really interesting as kind of a comparison point sure no, that makes makes total sense. So the last thing I just want to briefly mention is we did see the quantum realm in this film at the end when he goes subatomic and and like causes causes the the yellow jacket suit to go to go uh, haywire and implode. He also Scott Lang ends up in the quantum realm as well, and briefly. The, th- the thing that I think kind of stuck out to me now having seen the second film and now the third film and specifically the third film where basically takes place entirely in the quantum realm is there was they planted seeds for the quantum realm in this first film and they talk about it obviously extensively in the second film but I was I guess disappointed that there wasn't really any sort of direct connection with regards to kind of the look and feel like 
it would have been interesting if we would have seen something that 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 correlated with what we ended up seeing later on in these other films and like the other thing that kind of bothered me was the fact that at the end of the film lang comes back from the quantum realm and he basically does not remember a thing about the quantum realm at all at all he's like i'm sorry i don't remember anything about what happened i don't remember what i saw any of this sort of thing yet the second film is based entirely on the fact that he ends up getting those memories at some point and and it's it it struck me as mm-hmm. odd i guess and and obviously at the time if you're watching these films in 2015 you don't know what's coming ahead right you don't know ant-man and even Wasp if you're kevin feige well even he, if you're kevin yes. feige kevin feige knows <laughs> yes and presumably peyton reed probably knows as well but like i i guess given how much there is these kind of tie throughs from films and different things like that. It just seemed, it surprised me, I guess, looking back on it now that there wasn't more of a, a through line through with the, with the little bit of the quantum realm we saw. I don't think they had any idea in actual fact. I mean, we still haven't gotten through Thanos. We haven't gotten through all the other stuff. There's so much story there that and they hadn't cast Janet yet, so they couldn't really do a whole lot in terms of anything with that. But right. I mean if they'd have if they'd have put a little city in Kang down there and then made us wait seven or eight years before you had any idea what's <laughs> going on, people would have lost their minds. So this this is something where they we sort have of to did be that happy. with Thanos, but you know. I, I guess. Um it's something we have to kind of in some ways be happy that this isn't sort of a George Lucas run situation because lucas actually probably would have gone back and re-edited it and reissued it with re-digital footage that matched up with the stuff from the third ant-man movie which is what he sort of did in some of the star wars stuff driving most purists completely crazy and and calling for his blood Uh, i think reasonably by the way because a movie kind of an arc of arc artifact of its time so i like the fact that you know they built on it but yeah they didn't know what the quantum realm was and so it looks very different it looks like a bunch of spores he's just sort of going through and stuff like this rather than what we eventually get yeah yeah so we we've talked about edgar wright and and this film and and let's talk a little bit about him and this movie because this movie has kind of been in development actually for quite some time and in fact earlier than i think you may realize did you know that there was an ant-man film that went into development before there was a a marvel studios i did there was apparently the original kind of idea for an ant-man film was pitched to New World Pictures, which is Marvel Comics' parent company, in the late 1980s, and it was it didn't it it went into development, but nothing came of it, in part because Walt Disney Pictures was developing a film based on a similar concept called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, so it it never really ended up going anywhere. I I did not 
did not think that that was that was the case. That was that was crazy to me when when I when I saw some information about that. Yep. Edgar Wright ended up being attached to this film originally because he was he was a big fan of Ant-Man and he actually performed proposed this film to Marvel way back in 2003 and described it as an action adventure comedy a cross-genre action and special effects bonanza and uh they they like they liked the idea and he had been he kind of was working on the film they Marvel Studios really wasn't a thing quite at that level just yet and like you know they hadn't done their funding to get the original mm-hmm. iron man off the ground or anything at that point um so he just continued developing the film shooting test reels hiring cast you know he specifically picked out paul rudd and that for for this and was close to beginning shooting however in 2014 he dropped out due to creative differences with disney uh, who had bought Marvel Studios just a, a few years prior. And Wright's original kind of idea with this was a complete standalone film with no references to any other films in the MCU, which did not match the plan the studio had for for this film. And it was that, along with several other factors, that led to Wright leading, leaving the film. And the interesting thing is... It, a large portion of the script that he originally developed was what ended up in that final film. That's why he has a, a, a screen screenplay credit uh, on this mm-hmm. film. So a lot of, a lot of what ended up coming up onto the screen was a direct result of Edgar Wright. And it, and it started way back in, in 2003, which seems, seems crazy to me when you think about it, because the, the film took, 12 years to actually end up in a theater you know and have you watched much edgar wright are you a fan of any of that i so honestly shawn of the dead or yes any of this sort I, of stuff i i i'm i've seen a, a a couple of his films i i and i would say that you know i don't specifically look for his films but i think i've enjoyed the stuff i have seen of so we're going to have one I've got on the schedule coming up that we're going to be proposing. And that's Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which is okay. an Edgar White film. So okay. spectacular. One of my favorite comic book movies of all time. Spoiler alert, my wife hates this movie. So we'll see <laughs> what side of, of the Newland debate line you're on with it. Okay. Uh, she, she finds it to be one of the worst movies ever made. And I think mm. it's one of the best movies ever made. So there you go. Um so, since we're speaking of older stuff, did you see the reference to the the previous Ant Man in this movie? Because this was uh, when I first saw I heard, it. Absolutely, I I heard about it, but I didn't. I don't so know Garrett the Morris from the Saturday Night Live cast in the late seventies played Ant Man uh-huh. in an SNL skit, yes. and then he was brought back as like the cabbie or whoever it was that was sitting on the street and Ant-Man lands on top of his car. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I remember that so, at the end, of, at the end of the test run that he had with yep. the suit. Yes. That is, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. fantastic. Yes. That's the, uh, I lo- the superhero party thing where everybody's coming over and Belushi plays the Hulk. It's, it's really really a fun you can find it on youtube if you want to go watch it 
really fun yeah. stuff. So. All right, some quick tidbits about the film. Principal photography on the film started August 18th, 2014 in San Francisco. Working title of the film, Bigfoot, because, you know, of course it would be. Uh, so Scott's brief work at Baskin Robbins was originally going to be Chipotle, but Chipotle did not like the negative portrayal of them in the film. Uh, so they ended up switching it. The filmmakers considered Jamba Juice and then settled on Baskin Robbins after realizing that the bright colors of the store and, and the outfits and things would be a funny contrast to the dark prison opening. Uh, we've talked about Luis, played by Michael Pena. He actually based his character on a real-life friend by the name of Pablo, who was a minor criminal and talked just as rapidly as Luis does in the film, which I thought was awesome. actually quite, quite, quite great. Um, speaking of, about some of the, the VFX stuff, the shrunken down scenes featuring a great featured a great deal of dust mites, which was deliberate by the VFX artists to emphasize the insect's point of view. And, you know, that you would just see that a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And then most of the Ant-Man action scenes were shot normally with VFX around him. The exception was the fight with the Falcon. Anthony Mackie ended up having to mime the actions of getting beaten up by the Ant-Man in order to uh, to get that scene filmed. So I knowing that and then watching that scene, I actually was like, he actually did quite a good job of miming that out. Uh, a couple quick references to the comics. The first one jumped out to me, like the very first time I saw this was Darren Cross talking uh, about uh, the shrinking technology that he had come up with as sounding like a tale to astonish. Uh, I don't know if he caught that, but that is definitely a reference to Ant-Man's debut in Tales to Astonish number 27 from 1962. Uh, I thought Which we read that... last week. Yeah. No. Yes. yes. Last week. Yes. So, so yep. that was, that, that was great. And there was even uh, shrinks a chair as part of the demonstration, which was taken just mm -hmm. from the comic. They, they shrunk a chair during, during the comic as well. Uh, otherwise we have uh the yellow jacket armor is based on the GI Ant-Man armor from the irredeemable Ant-Man comic. The suit's helmet also incorporates the facial features of Hank's Pym's villainous robot uh, Ultron. And then uh, the yep. final one to mention is Scott is living in the Mulgram Hotel, and that is named after comic book artist Al Mulgram. So those are some some references to the comics that were in the film. And it's interesting with the Yellow Jacket armor, too, that because he didn't actually develop the Yellow Jacket armor this time, Pym didn't, that really you're taking all of the stuff, even the element of Ultron and that, and sort of moving it over to Cross, really making him more of that analog, even of sort of the evil version of Hank Pym than, uh, than he was just with the rest of it. So, yeah. Yeah. And also, the 
the weird thing is with they talk about how the yellow jacket suit uh, or using it without the right helmet can make you sort of go a little bit crazy that was actually when when hank first went crazy was when he became yellow jacket and essentially turned turned bad and then redeemed himself but still kept the yellow jacket armor so people in the yellow jacket armor going a little bit nuts is also something that has a precedent in the comics all right Dwayne. so we have read a bunch of wonderful wonderful comics we have watched a very entertaining film and I know how much you loved The Trial of Yellow Jacket last week. <laughs> yes. So this is going to be a very difficult choice for you. But if you had to pick, would you, uh, would you say you, that you enjoyed Avengers 212 through 230 and the selections we read, or Ant-Man the movie from 2015 more? I think this is a slam dunk to the movie. I, I know you're shocked. I know you're shocked. I just, just yeah. as, as we've talked about it, just Hank Pym is a piece of work in the comics and he is decidedly less terrible in this film and actually is a kind of a redeeming part of this film. And Paul Rudd does, I think a great job of bringing to life the comic book version of, of Scott Lang and I think they just, they told a pretty good story. Even if I did think the action sequence went a little too long in the end, um, I, I I just, I, I liked the movie better. There you go. I'm going to probably have to agree with that. I, I enjoyed the Avengers books more than you do. Partly that's probably nostalgic because they're some of the first ones I read. Partly it's because I think I more appreciated that they were trying to tell a difficult story. Sure. Whether or not they entirely succeeded or not, um, it was it was something that that was taking some chances with the comic form, which is not something that Marvel and DC did a lot in the early eighties. So sure. I I do appreciate that, but Ant Man is just a really entertaining, complete story. It's not going to tell a bunch of you know or or reveal anything. It's not going to change anybody's life. But if you just want to go and enjoy two hours at the movies with a good storyline and some good characters, I think it delivers. So we're going to spread our wings a little bit next week, aren't we? We are leaving for the first time really in about a year because it's been all Moon Knight and then it's been all Marvel movies. We're leaving the Marvel world for a week and we are heading off to watch the Shazam movie after reading a couple of Shazam comic books to kind of get ready for it. All right, so what we're going to do is we are going to look at three comic book stories from Shazam. The first one is from 1973. It's actually Shazam number one from DC Comics. This is the comic book where Shazam returns to sort of the world of comics after being in exile for about 20 years due to copyright reasons. We'll talk about some of that next week. Then we're going to look at Shazam! The Power of Hope from 2000, which is an absolutely brilliant story that uh, it's all completely painted. It's going to give a very different look, so I'm going to be interested to see what Dwayne thinks of that one. Yeah, and then the last one is a four-issue series called Shazam! The Monster Society of Evil by Jeff Smith of Bone fame. So 
if by any chance you've ever read the Bone series and enjoyed it, you kind of know what uh, what sort of stuff he brings. Talented guy, great cartoonist, and that's uh, another fun one. Would you say this is a, a different vibe than, say, The Trial of Yellow Jacket or some of the books that we've been reading recently from, from Marvel? I, th- this does seem like this is going to be a complete complete 180 shift from where we've been in recent weeks. Yep. Yes, it is. So, so. It's going to be a lot of fun, though. So we're getting ready for Sam Fury of the Gods. And then the next week after we, after we read these, we're going to go and check that movie out, let you know what we think of it. That's going to wrap it up for us for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. Have some thoughts on the Ant-Man film from 2015? Hank Pym or anything else comic book related? We'd love to hear them. You can interact with us on social media via Twitter. We are at Comics Over Time there. You can also reach us via email. That address is comments at Comics Over Time. Dan, I'm excited to check out something that isn't Marvel for a change. And, uh... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be Shazam. I I would not have put that on my bingo card if if you told me that we were gonna step outside of Marvel for for the first time. It is a little bit of an odd one, but since it's coming into theaters and uh, it's some interesting books to read, I think it's gonna be a nice change of pace. So we'll check it out. If nothing else, why does Shazam have a cool backstory we get to talk about? Because Captain Marvel has been around for a long time, and it's been a very, very crazy history. So, more on that next week. Until then, everybody, take care. See you later, folks.